Good morning. morning. All right, let's begin class for prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you're a father, and we thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for the spirit that uh, fills our hearts with your love and your truth, and we ask that your spirit will join us this morning, enlightening our minds, draw us together in unity, help us fulfill your purpose to lighten the world with the message that will prepare for your soon return. Give us wisdom as we study today, we pray in your holy name, amen. That's the first church on Stanford Gap Road. Received a call this week from someone who gave her testimony about watching the class online during the pandemic. She said that uh, that typically she and her husband watch the class live on Saturday mornings, but since inviting her son and his family over uh, to their home to have home church during this time, they've had to switch to watching us in replay in order to accommodate all of the questions coming from her 15-year-old grandson. They need to pause and answer the questions because he's asking so many questions, and they say sometimes they wish I could be there to give the answers and help them out. Uh, This was an unexpected result since her grandson had seemed to become disinterested in church when he was attending the regular services before the shutdown, but now seems uh, very, very interested and looking forward each week again. And I found this to be true, that young people want life to make sense platitudes, proclamations, declarations, claims don't have any real traction. But if you can explain to young people how reality works and why it's so, it really has great resonance. And this is what our message does. Our memory text for today is Matthew 9, 37 and 38. And it is, uh, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When is the harvest? You know, in Israel, they had two harvests. They also had two rains, a former rain and a latter rain, an early harvest and a later harvest. The early rain was for, obviously, the early harvest, and Bible lesson would be this was at the time of Pentecost. The early rain is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at the time of Pentecost for the early reaping to help build the early uh, apostolic church. But the latter rain falls to prepare and cause the latter harvest or the later harvest, the harvest of souls preparing for the second coming of Christ. And that idea of harvest has two applications the harvest of people from the world into the body of believers, those who have given their heart to Jesus and they come into the church invisible, they come into those who are loyal and faithful to Christ. That that harvest is part of the metaphor. But there's another metaphor when when God sends his angels, you know, it talks about into the um, world with a sickle to reap. And this is really the separating the wheat and the tares. Our job is to spread the seed, the Holy Spirit, the rain is poured out, brings conviction, brings people to conversion. That's not our job to bring people to conversion. And it's also our job, it's not our job to separate the wheat and the tares. That's, 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 that's the Lord's job. As I was uh, preparing for class, I found a couple of quotes I thought were interesting. Here is uh, one out of Acts of the Apostles, page 55. But near the close of earth's harvest, a special bestow of spiritual grace is promised to prepare the church for the coming of the Son of Man. This outpouring of the Spirit is likened to the falling of the latter rain, and it is for the additional, it is for the added power 
that Christians are to send their petitions to the Lord of the harvest. Do we pray for that added power? In the time of latter rain, it says in response, the Lord will make bright clouds and give them showers of rain. He will cause to come down the rain, the former rain and the latter rain. That's a Zechariah and Joel being quoted there. But unless the members of God's church today have a living connection with the source of all spiritual growth, they will not be ready for the time of reaping. Unless they keep their lamps trimmed and burning, they will fail of receiving added grace in the time of special need. Those only who are constantly receiving fresh supplies of grace will have the power proportionate to their daily need and their ability to use that power. Instead of looking forward to some future time through a special endowment of spiritual power, they will, uh, where they will receive miraculous fitting for the winning of souls, they are yielding themselves daily to God that he may make them vessels useful for his, or meat for his use. Daily they are improving the opportunities for service that lie within their reach. Daily they are witnessing for the master wherever they may be, whether in humble sphere of labor or in public field. What's being described? Hopefully you were listening because I didn't put you to sleep reading too much. I'm asking you to think what's being described why is it that the ones ready to see, receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit are the ones who did not wait and look for some future time, but were active each day developing themselves, applying themselves in God's cause, spending time with Him, connecting with Him, sharing what He has done with them, for, with, them with others? Why are these the ones to receive the outpouring of the Spirit and not those who stand by waiting for a future miracle? Is there a law involved here? Is there a law involved? It's the law of exertion. Oh, law of giving. Okay, exercising that principle too. Exactly. Law of exertion, law of giving, law of love. What happens if you don't exercise? If you don't use it, you lose it. But if you do exercise, you get stronger. So what would happen if a person who never exercised, never studied a playbook, never lifted weights, but dreamt about being the starting quarterback in the next Super Bowl team, and because of their dreams, they bought all of the team's paraphernalia, they had team shirts and team hats with team logos, and they even got team jerseys and team helmets, and they would go around society dressed up in the uniform. But they never exercised. They never studied a playbook. They never actually worked out. They just dreamt of being the starting quarterback and, and dressed in the proper colors. What would happen if that person was actually put in the game at the Super Bowl to play quarterback? What would happen? Would it turn out well for anyone? Would they actually understand the play being signaled in from the sideline? They would be confused, wouldn't they? They wouldn't understand the directions being given by the coach. They're completely out of touch. Someone said it would turn out well for the other team. Oh, yes, it would. Think about the other Yes, yes, yes. I love that comment. It would turn out. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
So, we're, but we're using this metaphor about why some don't get the outpouring of the Holy Spirit if they're waiting for the future miracle. They're not exercising and applying now. The responsibility and the pressure on that quarterback in the Super Bowl who's only dreamt of it. Not only are they confused and don't understand anything that's happening, they don't have the ability to carry the weight, do they? No, they'd be crushed. What will happen to people who have not developed themselves in godliness if the Holy Spirit were to come upon them with greater intensity of power? This is design law. Do you see how much sense design law makes? We at Come and Reason Ministries have been praying for years that the Lord will send more workers to the field. More people who will join us in sharing this message. And over the years, this ministry has slowly grown. You may not know it, but August 2020, we turned 10. It was 10 years ago, August 2010, that we were officially incorporated into a not-for-profit organization. Now, our Bible study class started back in 2004, but we didn't become a not-for-profit ministry until 2010. Do you realize it's been 10 years, folks? Does that seem like a quick 10 years? And the final movements will be rapid ones. Yeah. Yeah. So, and God has blessed us. And every year we slowly grow. Every year we have more people helping us share this message and we're reaching more. So we want to thank you and keep praying um, for more workers in the field. Yet we still see so much more to do, don't we? And since there's so much more to do, and we see so much more to do, does that mean we should each work harder? I paused in the middle of the sentence. Should we each work harder if we're already doing what God has called us to do? Well, let me share this quotation with you. It's out of Desire of Ages 361. Though Jesus could work miracles and had empowered his disciples to work miracles, he directed his worn servants to go apart into the country, and rest. When he said that the harvest was great and the laborers were few, he did not urge upon his disciples the necessity of ceaseless toil, but said, pray the Lord of the harvest that he will send more laborers into his field. God has appointed to every man his work according to his ability, and he would not have a few weighted with responsibilities while others have no burden, no travail of soul. Christ's words of compassion are spoken to his workers today, just as surely as they were spoken to his disciples. Come ye apart and rest a while. He says to those who are worn and weary, It is not wise to be always under the strain of work and excitement, even in ministering to men's spiritual needs. How many pastors need to know that? For in this way, personal piety is neglected, and the powers of the mind and soul and body are overtaxed. Self-denial is required of the disciples of Christ, and sacrifice must be made, but care must also be exercised lest through their overzeal Satan take advantage of the weakness of humanity and the work of God is marred. What did you hear? Did you hear any laws involved? Yes, 
the law of restoration, which is the corollary to the law of exertion. If you want something to get stronger, you must exercise it. But as finite beings, once you have expended a resource, we must rest and recover before we have more to expend. The law of restoration. A baseball pitcher must rest between games or it will ruin their arm. A Olympic marathon runner, even if they win gold medal, will not run a marathon the next day. They must rest and recover. Wendell. Elijah. Elijah, yes, he ran and needed to rest, didn't he? One of Satan's strategies. If he cannot get good people to choose evil, is to overtax them with too many good things to do to the point that they burn out. Hear that, folks. If he can't get you to choose evil, then he will fill you with many, many good missions for the Lord, well beyond human ability, to the point you exhaust yourself and then become the object of someone else's ministry. Somebody has to care for you. We must have the wisdom to maintain the health of our spirit temples, our bodies, so that we can stay on the field as long as God would have us work for his cause. While I was preparing for today's class on small groups about connecting with other people, I was thinking about the unity we are to have in Christ, about how God created us to be one with him and each other, and how sin separates and divides us and fragments us. And I was reflecting on movements in the world today and how so much is happening right now that's causing division rather than unity. And as I was studying and researching, I came across this other historic quote that I wanted to go through with you guys in a little bit of detail. It's out of um, the Testimonies to the Church Containing Messages of Warning and Instruction to the Seventh-day Adventist. That's a long title, isn't it? Special messages. What an argument of power is the prayer that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us. Now, you know who prayed that, right? That was Jesus' prayer. So Jesus is praying this, and this author says, what a argument of power is this prayer. One with God, unity with its power there somehow. Now, what is another word for becoming one with God? Atonement. That's exactly right. Atone or atonement. At one mint. Jesus talked about atonement, but he talked about it through design law, through reality, through being re reconciled or reunited or brought back into one mint with God. There is nothing penal legal in atonement. Sadly, the word atonement has been conditioned into our mind through the law of the lens of human law such that we hear it as appeasement or payment or some legal process. It never was in God's kingdom that way. It's what Jesus is talking about here at one minute, which is healing or restoring hearts that are alienated from God, writing the law on the heart and mind, bringing us back into unity with God, such that fear and selfishness are displaced and love, truth, liberty, God's principles are restored. And it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We have the mind of Christ. We're at one with God in heart, functionally, operationally. Continuing with the quote. 
that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them. You considered that. That they may be one, even as we are one. The glory the Father gave the Son, he has given us. So that as they are one, we might be one. What is God's glory? (laughs) Self-sacrificing love. It is his glory, is his character of love. Absolutely right. And it is that love which brings unity, healing, and oneness. It is at this time in earth's history that a special message is to go forward to be in awe of God and to give him glory because the hour in human history has come for what? For the judgment of God for people to finally judge him correctly. For people finally to say, whoa, God is not this imperial dictator who looks like Baal, who requires some payment, some legal uh, intervention, somebody to work on him to get him to act in my favor. God is exactly like Jesus. I need to reject this imperial legal thing and embrace my creator and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. And how do people see that? By seeing people who give glory to God in the way that they live by loving others and coming into that unity of love. This is the true message. Continue on with the quote, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. That's part of the prayer. You can find it right in John chapter 17. So quoting Jesus' prayer. What is the perfection here described? I in them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one. Bible perfection. Does it scare you? Maturity of character to function how? Like Christ. We will be one, it says here. We will be perfect in one. This is the perfection of love for each other, that we are perfect in one. And how do we get this type of perfection? Exercise in pursuing or cooperating with the Holy Spirit in achieving reconciliation with God. As we are united to God, we are united to each other who are also united to God. As we are united to God, we are cut away from those people who are not being united from God to God. Circumcision of the heart by the Holy Spirit is cutting away from the, cutting us away from the world and the attachments to the world, which also means cutting away from people who are not being reconciled to God. You understand that? Not cutting your love for them, you still love them, but cutting your unity. You're not united with them anymore. You love those who are of the world, but you're not united with those who are of the world. And if you can't see that, just think about how you might love a a friend or a family member who's a cigarette smoker. You might love them deeply, but you're not united with them in the practice of smoking. I'm alienated from that. That is not harmony with me. But I love you. But we're not united on that. 
And then you take that and apply it across the landscape of God's principles. By being united with God through the victory of Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelling us, fear and selfishness is removed. We have love of God put in. Continue on with the quote. And that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you loved me. I have repeated these, this wonderful statement, for it contains the very evidence that we are to present to the world, the perfection of unity in the followers of Christ. The members of the church of God must reach this perfection. Again, what perfection? The perfection of loving each other as God loves us. It is not task perfection. It doesn't mean that you can never burn the toast. It is love for others perfection. And this love for each other, according to this author, is, quote, the very evidence that we are to present to the world. Evidence? What is evidence? It reveals how reality works. That's what evidence does. It is evidence of a power contrary to the powers of this earth. Look around at the earthly powers. The powers of the prince of, of darkness and the principalities and the powers of this earth. Look around at them. Where you see the powers of the earth at work, do you get more unity? of love. You never get more unity. You always get more division, confusion, hostility, segregation, rebellion. Rebellion. You cannot get the unity of love with the powers of this world. Only the powers of God can do this. And this is why you can never have God's unity practicing human law imperialism, passing legislation, threatening to punish people who don't practice your methods. You can't get it. Try to get more love and unity from people that you're threatening to punish who don't give you love. You cannot get more love threatening to punish people who don't love you. You only get less. This is the corruption of political powers and earthly governments. They divide, they incite, understand, Every human government in the history of the world incites injustice. Every human government, I'll say that again, in the history of the world incites injustice. And the more government, the more injustice. Because all human laws are arbitrary constructs. And they're all applied through the lens of human bias and prejudices and people in the connection, in the know, in the relationship, in the family, in the, in the right racial group, in the right national group, in the right religious group, in the, in the right financial group. It doesn't matter. In every culture, the laws that human governments pass create injustices, the haves and the have-nots. Those who can get by with crime and those who are punished for crimes they didn't commit. Every human government is this way. It's inevitable. It's unavoidable. And that's why there's only one righteous role in the sinful world 
for the use of power, human governments, and that is merely to restrain overt evil, to hold in check those who want to actively do harm. That's its only role. And the more human governments decide to promote moral agendas of any kind, the more unjust they will become. Because the more they will pass laws and then punish people through various means, economic pressures and economic sanctions, and no one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast, etc., etc., etc. And and there's always some disadvantage, always loopholes, and the people with the better attorneys can figure out the ways to get the advantage when people can't. It's constant, constant, constant. God's government is built on design law, and it doesn't matter what group you belong to. Gravity treats everyone the same. Yes? Do you see much of a difference in the religious world? No. uh, Most of the religious world is pagan, including most of Christianity. Most of Christianity is pagan Christianity, not Bible Christianity. Pagan Christianity is based on human law. God's law works like our law. He made up rules. He oversees them. He uses power to enforce and punish. Payments have to be made. Legal accountings have to be taken care of. God has to be propitiated or appeased. Thus, this is Baal worship. So almost all religions of the world and much of Christianity is promoting the intoxicating wine that comes out of Babylon, imperialism. There is a final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's return, and that message is the truth about God's character of love, and his laws are the laws that the Creator built reality to operate from, which are always manifestations of his character of love. They're how reality works. Continuing on with the quote, but love is the evidence of a power that the world cannot overthrow. It's an evidence that the world needs. But as Christianity is infected with imperialism, instead of promoting the love of others, the love of unity, we instead join various political groups that we believe will promote the right legislative agendas to get the right policies passed by the state governments to advance what we believe is our version of righteousness. It's a complete corruption. It's part of what we are to come out of. We are to come out of Babylon, that confusing system. Continuing on with the quote, I cannot do more than urge upon them that this perfection is found in unity in Christ. The Savior has presented before us how much will be gained in working out the unity that will join one believer to another in the perfection of Christian love. Do we love each other as Christ loves us? And by the way, when we love somebody, think about the people you really, really love the most in the world. Do you agree with everything they say? Do you smile and go along with everything they want to do? Some of the deepest and most powerful love is the, is the love a parent has for a child. And I can tell you, if you love your small children... You definitely don't let them do whatever they want to do. (laughs) You can use your power to restrain them from running into a street. But you can't use your power to beat them till they love you. But love will risk being misunderstood to protect them. I can tell you, Mama, good to see you. Love you, Mama. 
I can tell you when I was a child, I, I remember moments where I hated my mother. And I hate you. You're the meanest mother in the world. <laughs> I never want to speak to you again. You know what? My mother loved me. Because she risked me hating her to discipline me to do what was necessary for me. So that perfection is the perfection of love. And when we love our fellow brothers and sisters, we get to know them, but then we may have some heart-to-heart conversations with them. But then after we do that with an adult and we confront perhaps things that we know are not right in their life, we leave them free. We stop hounding. We stop pestering. We leave them free. But we don't necessarily join them in their path of destruction either. It's not about task performance. It's about loving other people well. Uh, This message I am given to bear as the Lord's messenger. Do you feel uncomfortable with her making that claim? Are you willing to claim to be the Lord's messenger? Why not? I, I, I have no problem. Didn't the Lord say, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. We are to be lights in a world, are we not? Are we not to be His messengers? Yes. Yes! We're His messengers. Embrace it. Embrace it. I'm not a messenger like Sister White was. Uh, But but why not? How do you know? Why not? I haven't been inspired of God to do anything right. She says she hasn't been inspired. Um, What does the Bible say about spiritual things? Um, Spiritual things are discerned by your own hard work. Is that what it says? By your own ingenuity, by your own creativity, by your own human ability. Spiritual things are discerned by? By the Spirit of God. So if somebody speaks spiritual truth, whether it's Paul, Peter, Billy Graham, anybody speaking spiritual truth, how are they able to know that spiritual truth? Did they know it on their own? Things of the world are foolishness to the, uh, to the people of God and so forth and so on. Or is it the Holy Spirit enlightened them or inspired them with the truth? Don't fall into this trap that some people have some special whatever that you denied. It's the same Holy Spirit that inspires all the people of God. Some have different gifts, but they have the same inspiration. God gifts us with different gifts. But who do you think... If somebody is gifted with the gift of teaching from the Holy Spirit, who is the inspiring source? If someone's gifted with a gift of preaching, or somebody's gifted with the gift of hospitality, or somebody's gifted with the gift of healing, or somebody's gifted with the gift of prophecy, they're all inspired and have the same inspiration. This idea that I was raised with, and, and, and Tina, thank you for articulating it, because I, I, seriously, I, I and I promise you, around the circle, there's probably 300 people right now going, yeah, yeah, amen, Tina, amen. I, that's a, I'm glad you said that, because that's exactly what I was thinking. Okay, Seriously, we get that all the time. I love Tina. She says what I'm thinking. Okay, I was raised with the same idea, but it's not actually the way it's been presented true. The Holy Spirit inspires all who are humbly surrendered to them, but with different gifts, with different abilities. So we are called to give a message at this time in human history. That's what this point of this thing I'm sharing with you is. We 
the church are to reveal the unity, which is the evidence, the unity of love, which is the evidence of God's kingdom. Do you think you can have that unity of love for your fellow Christians, members in Christ, without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? No, that's the Holy Spirit. And thus you become a messenger of that message. I think there's this idea that the devil wants to trick us into thinking, oh, well, I don't have that particular gift that that particular person having, therefore I can't really do much. I can't really be a messenger. I can't be a witness because I don't have that gift. Huh, I'm going I'm to call that into question. Continue on with the quote. The unity for which Christ prayed is a sacred privilege of discipleship. There it is. Those who entered heaven must, those who enter heaven must be one with Christ. Do you agree or disagree so far? Okay. Unless they should bear the same perfection of character that he bore while on this earth, they would spoil heaven. If we don't have the perfection of Christ-like character and we go into heaven, we would spoil it. They, in other words, we would be selfish, we'd be deceitful, we'd be arrogant, we'd be murderers, we'd be perverts if we don't have his perfection. We would spoil the purity of heaven like Lucifer spoiled the purity of heaven. Continuing on. The trial and test is to come here in this world. Here we are to be stamped with the image and superscription of God. I will write my law in their hearts, sealed in their foreheads. Superscription, okay. Foreheads were character, okay. The virtue of the grace of Christ will perfect the character of every believer who truly accepts him. Will perfect. So, does this frighten you? You must be as perfect as Jesus. Yes. Why would this frighten you? What law lens are you looking through? If you were dying of metastatic cancer and you went to an oncologist and he said, here is a remedy, and as I apply this to you, the cancer will go 100% into remission. You will be perfectly healed. You go, that scares me, Doc. I I don't know that I ever could be perfectly healed. Just heal me 80%. Leave about 20% of the cancer. (laughs) Without the shedding of blood, Christ's blood, there is no remission of sin. Do you believe that through the achievements of Christ, that those who trust him open avenues into their inner world, their hearts and minds, through which the Spirit dwells to bring application that actually puts fear and selfishness into remission? That we have new hearts and right spirits. Was Jesus tempted in every way just like we are? Does having fear and selfishness in our characters put into remission mean that we enter a place on this current planet where we're beyond temptation? We don't experience fear and selfishness anymore. Is that what that means? No, No, it doesn't mean that at all. In fact, I'm going to suggest you might actually be much more stressed by fear and selfishness because as you come closer to Christ and your character is renewed to be like his, you become more sensitive your conscience becomes more sensitive. Things in this world that you didn't notice before are vulgar and disgusting. I can tell you there are things I used to be able to watch on TV. I can't tolerate it anymore. Uh, language that I didn't notice in my times past, I notice now. And it's like, I can't listen to that. It grates on my character. It's ugly. I don't like it. As you're being transformed. Okay? So, so 
If you view this under imposed law, system of rules, then you're looking at deeds, behaviors. I can never be perfect. What happens if I, if I stumble? If, if something happens and, and in a moment of, 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 oh, I don't know, sleep deprivation and high stress and people yelling and I just lose it for a second and I, and I yell a bad word and then I'm hit by a truck and I didn't get to confess it. This is a classic trap of the penal legal frauds in our society. The person who has been reborn to Christ may have moments of human weakness like that. But as soon as they're past that moment of emotional, uh, let's say, intensity, their character reflects and goes, oh, that's not who I want to be. Oh, I'm grieved in my soul, in my true self. I hate being that weak. I hate being that kind of person. Oh, who will save me from this body of death? I have some deeply embedded patterns of behavior that are deeply wired in, that are habits, and I don't, I don't want those habits anymore, Lord. See, that person has a new heart and right spirit, but they have old biology. It's true. They have wired in certain reflexive reactions and habit patterns that haven't been updated yet. That's that's Romans chapter 7. Where the things I don't want to do, I sometimes find myself doing. And the good things I want to do, sometimes I don't achieve. But my heart wants to. Oh, I long to be that person, Lord. That's a heart that's right with the Lord. That's a mature character. But notice how we achieve it according to this. There are some out there who will put the burden on you. You gotta work hard. You gotta read the right books. You've gotta get the right uh, dietary. You've gotta get the right recipes. You've got to, you've got to, uh, make sure you've got the proper timepiece to make sure your TV's off, uh, at least 30 seconds before the sun goes down on Friday. You, you've gotta do the right stuff, folks. But notice what the actual, this author put. This is a quote from the author. The virtue of the grace of Christ will perfect the character of every believer who accepts him. What is it that perfects us? Your hard work? Or the virtue of the grace of Christ perfects you? Again, you have cancer, and you actually cooperate with your doctor. You take the chemo, or you take the radiation treatments, or whatever it is they're giving you at our current day and age. And the virtue of that treatment puts the cancer in remission. Your work is simply to trust the doctor and follow the prescription. Very straightforward. You don't develop it. You don't, you don't provide it. You don't even have to understand it, but you have to take it. Going on. All true disciples are made members of the royal family. Do you feel royal today? Do you feel royal today? Or are you a worm? A worm that's so low. You know the worm metaphors, right? Okay. No! You're not a worm. You're a member of the royal family. All have the new heart and all blend in perfect harmony. Now get your mind around what's coming next. They speak the same thing, though in this world their language may differ. How can we speak the same thing if we're speaking a different language? They speak the same thing, though in this world their language may differ. Their manner of expression may not be the same, but their one desire is for the highest end in this life, the sanctification of the same spirit they love as brethren. 
We may be from different countries, different races, different cultures, different tribes, different languages, but we all have new hearts that love God and love other people. We speak the language of heaven, which is the language of truth, presented in love, leaving other people free. That's the language of heaven. And it terrifies Satan. He does not want us to speak truth, love, and freedom. The enemy does not want us to love. He wants us to hate, to fear, to distrust. And thus, we can see in the world today the movements that he inspires by seeing the hostilities and the divisions it incites. Continue with the quote. Christ's disciples must obey the laws of heaven on this earth else they will never obey them in the higher world. (gasps) Oh, man, just when you gave me hope, you're crushing me. The disciples must obey the laws of heaven on this earth, else they will never obey them in the higher world. What laws? When you hear the word laws, what law lens are you hearing the word laws through? Is this describing you must have someone that had a vision that could look through vision, through God's inspired, heavenly, visionary lens into the sanctuary in heaven and into the most holy place and into the Ark of the Covenant and into those ten and then see that one glowing with special glow. And if you don't have that person to tell you those right rules, then you'll never keep the right list here and there's no hope for you. Is that how you hear that? That's not what it means. In heaven... What kind of law did the angels have prior to Lucifer's rebellion? Why was it in heaven when God informed them of law that it came to them something as unthought of? Think it through with me for a moment. Design laws, like laws of gravity, laws of physics, laws of motion, and so forth, versus imposed rules, tax laws, speed limit, and so forth. What kind of law can be in operation and no one's affirmatively informed about it? What law cannot be in operation without first telling people about it? Can you expect anybody to pay their taxes if you never tell them they have to pay taxes? No. Nobody will pay taxes. You have to tell them. It's an imposed law. Can you expect people to not jump off of 100-foot embankments or cliffs without telling them about gravity? Yes, you can expect they won't do it. Why? Because it's a design law. It's how reality works. See, the angels, it's, it'd be like, again, the example I've used with gravity before when Isaac Newton had his apple drop and he, and he, and he, and he describes in equation the law of gravity and he tells his friends, Oh, I've discovered the law of gravity. You can imagine all his friends going, Huh, there's a law about that? That never occurred to me. It's just how things work. That's the law in heaven, how life is built to operate. If we do not love here, so it's saying, if we do not love here, we will hate love there. If we don't love here, we will hate love there. If we don't embrace honesty and truthfulness here, we will hate truth there. If we do not practice liberty and freedom here, we will not value liberty there. That's what it's saying. 
It will seem righteous to the imperial law, the beastly people, to use power to torture and kill people who don't keep the rules. They will say, that's right. You see it in society every day. Every day people are screaming for somebody to be punished under the guise of justice. It is about character, what the heart becomes by the methods and principles and design laws we accept, value, internalize, and practice here. What do we become, actually? By faith or trust in Jesus, we can overcome our inherent fear and selfishness and experience the restoration of godliness within, such that these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Continuing on with the quote, I call upon every physician, upon every gospel minister, to obey the laws of God in everything. Interesting. I find this, this sentence so interesting. What kind of laws do physicians work with in treating patients? The laws of health. The laws of health. These are design laws. Are the laws that the gospel operates upon a different type? Do they operate to become a, a different mechanism? Are they simply a list of rules that we make up and they're under infliction of punishment? Or are they operating upon the same methodology, design, how reality works? I actually get this from certain Christian leaders who embrace imperial law. They will say, oh, of course, God is the creator, and he does build all of nature, so he, his laws do include the laws of health and the law of gravity and the laws of physics and so forth. Of course, of course, of course, of course, of course. But the moral laws, the Ten Commandments, they're imposed. It's a very simple thing to shoot down. Just ask the question. So the only problem with a person committing adultery is that there's a demerit in a book in heaven. If we were to commit adultery today and our current spouse never finds out, that action of adultery, maybe it goes on for multiple encounters, maybe months and years, that action of cheating on the spouse that doesn't sear a conscience, it doesn't warp a character, doesn't heart a heart, it doesn't corrupt the integrity, doesn't cause a person to become more deceitful, more dishonest, it doesn't cause guilt, it doesn't cause shame. There's actually no harm to the sinner at all. It's just a little check mark in a book in heaven. It's a legal problem. If there's harm to the person who's acting in sin, it's design law. Continuing on with the quote, the world is the school in which we are to prepare for graduation into the higher school. I mean, I gotta go to school forever? <laughs> what are we to learn in this world, the school of this world? We're to learn the truth about God and his methods. We're to learn to discern, to differentiate truth from the lies of Satan. We're to learn to trust God. We're to learn to value his design laws. We're to learn to love and put love into practice in how we treat others. We're to learn honesty. We're to learn integrity. We're to learn loyalty with our being. And then for those who love and trust God and learn the lessons of heaven, we graduate into eternity in which there's no more sin, no more disease, no more pain, no more suffering, no more death, but we're still in school because God is infinite and we are finite. And it becomes an exciting time because all eternity future, we never stop advancing and learning and growing into the infinite depths of our God of love. It's going to be exciting. Next, uh, can you go with the quote? Grades are arbitrary constructs. 
<laughs> on the one hand, on the other hand, we are getting a grade for it. Pass or fail. <laughs> Meaning reconciliation and at one minute where we love God and others or hardening into selfishness where we hate God and others. And our grade is who we become. We know not who are the chosen of God only as they reveal the education they have received from the Father and the Son through the Holy Spirit. Christ is their mediator, their righteousness, and their unity centers in God. Mediator? Where is Christ mediating? In the heavenly sanctuary, which is built out of what? What is the building material, the construction blocks of this sanctuary in heaven, according to inspired sources, like the scriptures? Living, intelligent people. Know ye not that ye yourself are a temple of God where he dwells by his spirit? Jesus said, destroy this temple. Jesus is the chief cornerstone rejected by the builders brought together to build us together in a house for the Lord. Okay, So yes, he's working in the sanctuary, but that's a metaphor for the temple, which is a metaphor for the hearts of God's and minds of God's people. Jesus is mediating via his spirit into our hearts to cut out selfishness, fear, distrust, lust, unholy passions, and right in truth, godly love, the fruits of the spirit. Did you know that each day in the Old Testament system, the Old Testament temple, every day the high priest And only the high priest would trim the lamps. Seven lamps on the lampstand. Only the high priest would trim the lamps. The daily priest couldn't trim the lamps. The lampstand had a central pillar that was made out of solid gold. That central pillar represents Jesus. Perfect, godly, golden character. Six in Bible um, numbers represents humankind. Man was made on day six. Six other bowls are connected to Jesus, and that makes the number. And seven in Bible is perfection. When we sinful humans are united with Christ, we are perfected. And the bowls represent our hearts, and know ye not that you are a light unto the world? But only the high priest, Jesus, can intercede in our hearts to cut away the dross, the misconceptions, the selfishness, the all the things that make our lights shine poorly. And as he cuts away the crud out of our hearts, the fear, the selfishness, the deceit, the misunderstandings, we shine more brightly. So we have this beautiful metaphor that he's mediating in our hearts and minds via his spirit. Continue with the quote. Those who are so stubborn that they will not comply with the prayer of Christ will be lawless, loveless, impolite. They could not be admitted into the heavenly, into the family of heaven. Christ, remember prayer that they be one as he and the Father are one, but those too stubborn to comply will be lawless, loveless, and impolite. Why? That's what they prefer. But what if we keep a weekly Bible Sabbath and eat only the approved foods and pay a faithful tithe and get baptized in the right way and we attest to the proper list of fundamental beliefs and we uh, claim Jesus' blood as our payment for our sins? Then what? 
Can a person do all those things and not be united with God in heart? And why do those who refuse to be united with, with God in heart, mind, method, principle, motives, why do they become lawless and loveless? What, 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 what law lends you? Look, think it through. Lawless means rule breaker? No, they could be like the Pharisees. They were the best rule keepers. But they were lawless because they were out of harmony with God's design for life. You can only operate in in harmony with heavenly law as the Holy Spirit renews and writes the law in your heart and mind, which is selflessness, other-centeredness, love, truth, freedom. Again, all right, continue on the quote. Boy, this quote's gotten longer than I thought. All right, the truth cherished. Do you like this quote, how we're unpacking it, though? Okay, it says, the truth cherished in the heart will work out a blessed unity among Christ's disciples in the lower school of earth. The Lord is dishonored by the contention and strife caused by the unsanctified dispositions of professing Christians. Notice, partaking of the gospel, the truth, uh, partaking of Jesus, partaking of his principles, it brings unity. But he's dishonored when we claim to represent him and have disunity. And what the truth that's cherished in the heart, this author says, works out a blessed unity. The truth cherished. What is that truth? I'm going to suggest it's the eternal gospel, the eternal good news which Satan has lied about. And that eternal good news is the truth about God himself and his design laws. Now he runs his government. And what dishonors the Lord? It's the strife and the conflict, which is always the result of imposed law. The more imposed law, the more conflict. Just look at Christian churches, and they have their imposed law that they're going to impose on their membership. And that imposed law will always result in fractions and divisions and fighting and and all this stuff in the the political body, uh, which is not really the loving membership anymore. I have written out fully the instruction that I was commissioned to give. We are now to take our individual selves in hand and conquer the wicked feelings that arise in our hearts. In allowing the venom of these feelings to flow forth in words, we help Satan in his work. The venom. How many in the Christian world today are being duped into following the feelings of anger, rage, resentment, bitterness, hurt over real injustices that motivate them to act in ways that are contrary to love? But we are to be one with God as Jesus is one with God. And when did Jesus make this prayer? Father, I pray that they be one as you and I are one. When did he make the prayer in the history of his life? What, what was about to happen to him? He was just before Gethsemane. Just before his righteous and honorary trial. Or his corrupt and unjust treatment. And do we see Jesus in the face of human injustice, seeking to use violence to stop it. Peter did. Peter whipped out a sword. This isn't right. This is unjust. This isn't fair. You're breaking your own law. You're not supposed to do this at night. You're supposed to come in the daytime. These people are making false allegations. This is a betrayer. He's stabbing him in the back. This is wrong. It's unjust. Give me my sword. Whack! Put away the sword, Peter. What about us in the world today? Consider seeing someone assaulting another 
What is your instinct? I want you to see the temptation because I've been praying about this. I've been tempted. I've seen it. What would you want to do? What if you saw a person assaulting your child, your wife, your husband, your mother, your sister? What if you saw somebody assaulting them? When you see these new news images of somebody being dragged out of their car and beaten on the streets, do you want to go in there with mighty justice and whack them in the head? Do you feel that temptation? The devil's at work in your heart. The devil's at work in your heart. That's what Peter was doing. Peter whipped out the sword. Do you think any of these people being beaten on the streets of America are more innocent than Jesus was when he was being drugged away that night? If you get tempted, you see that circumstance, seeing somebody, imagine that again. Somebody is grabbing your wife, your child, and they're dragging them off. They're about to beat them with a stick. You have a gun, and the person doing it is your oldest son. Now what do you want to do? Do you still want to kill them? You do want to intervene, but do you want to intervene to punish them now? Do you want to intervene to make them pay? Do you want to intervene to kill them, or do you want to intervene to restrain and save them now? You still want to intervene, but is your intervention one of retaliation, one of anger, one of, one of I want to destroy the evil, uh, the evil person, or do you want to destroy the evil in the heart? So you need to stop. You want to restrain. This is the righteous use of power. Stop the mistreatment in its tracks. Let's hold. Let's restrain. But let's not injure and give opportunity to repentance to the one who's doing harm. Remember, every, every, every person out there, the people being mistreated on the streets and the people doing the mistreatment, every one of them is a child of God. He wants to save them all. And I have to pray, Lord, help me approach this with the love that you would have. I can tell you right now that this so-called movements afoot in America that are calling for certain forms of justice to certain portions of our community are not calling to loving, to love those who have mistreated. They're calling to punish those who have mistreated. That's imperialism. That's Satan's kingdom. It is not the unity for which God has called us. You can see glimpses of that unity if you remember when the Amish girls were taken hostage, five of them were killed, and the Amish community forgave the man and helped the family. You saw this in a black church in South Carolina a few years ago where a gunman shot up and killed a bunch of them, and they forgave him and did not seek retaliation against him. You can see glimpses of this love in our society, but you know what? Our society, especially those that are seeking power in the earthly system, don't want to hold those up as examples. They want to hold up the the others and outrage you so that they can get you, good Christian person, to be like Peter. It's okay if you want to follow Jesus. Just do it with the sword. Man, there's a whole bunch more in the lesson that we're not going to get to today because I really went over lots and lots of stuff in the notes. Um, I encourage you to uh, check out the notes and and see the other materials that are there. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you are our creator, our God who is love and whose laws are the protocols you built reality to operate upon. We can look into this world right now and we can see the collapsing of Babylon. We can see the system falling in on itself. We can see that the methods of imperialism, coercion, threat, intimidation do not work, do not heal, do not restore, do not bring us to oneness. We know only by putting Jesus and his love at the center can we be freed from our own fear, our own selfishness, our own desire to retaliate and be restored into the loving unity that you have for us. But we need more than just love, Lord. We need to be effective purveyors and promoters of truth. 
And Lord, we pray that you will enable us to speak truth into this world so that people can see and make clear distinctions between these methods that can appear on one level to be right but actually injure and cause harm. And that the final message will lighten the world and we will see you face to face very soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.